Should have brought that. I got rhythm. I got music. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. Well, welcome back to the Gentleman's Dojo. To yes. my left, as always, from Detroit, Michigan, a sprite young man with yeah. the body of a cubicle worker. <laughs> it's so funny. We talked about this last night. We because normally our guest who doesn't realize this uh, uh, is finding this out now. We always take pot shots at each other. Yeah. Each other, and I said. We have a very let's keep it classy tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> out of the we, gates. I'm sorry. Yeah, we have a very classy guest coming <laughs> in the studio. You know, let's save our pot shots for the guys from TMZ later today. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to my left is Gary Cannon. Yes. Go ahead. And then to my right, the uh, very funny just released his third hour special, fourth hour waiting to come out. Steve Byrne. That's how you do it. Thank you. It's very kind. <laughs> and I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, yes. which leads us into uh, our, our subject matter our opening today. Song. Our opening song, yeah. yeah. And we are, let me just say, uh, thrilled, honored, incredibly appreciative that this fine young lady is taking time out of her day to sit here and spend time with us to discuss the very gentleman who sang us would into you, the Would show. you say this is our classiest guest of the dojo so far? This has got to yeah. be the classiest yeah, dojo, yeah, yeah. dojo guest. Not only that, yeah. the most beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our guests normally don't wear pants. They come in with sweatpants and you know, yeah. they, they, <laughs> cargo reeking, shorts, flip flops. Reeking of yeah. Jägermeister. <laughs> <laughs> this Just woman is of... showered. Yeah. <laughs> we usually have hungover comedians, but here we are with Miss Patricia Ward Kelly, everybody. So thank you. Thank, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, for, I know we may be treading into subject matter that may be repetitive to you or familiar to you, but this is a, a comedic audience, and these are folks that maybe know quite a bit about Gene Kelly, but not not the stories, and obviously that 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 you know. Uh, so I'm sorry if we're if we're saying things that we're asking you things that you've probably been asked a thousand times, but there's no a reason problem. I think everybody's so so darn intrigued. But let's just start it off. How did you initially meet Gene? Well, it's a very funny story. It's a little uh, embarrassing because I was one of the few people in the world who did not know who Gene Kelly was. What? I was writing a television special about the Smithsonian, and Gene was brought in as a host narrator. And when they said that Gene Kelly was going to be narrating, I didn't know if that was a man or a woman. And (laughs) so it was, uh, I was a really nerdy Herman Melville scholar. I was, my nose was always in a book in a library, and I didn't go to the movies much. And so uh, the director threw us in a room together. so many women. Jean was one of the most eligible bachelors in the world at the time. So all the women on the set were just scratching at the door to get at him <laughs> to get a marriage proposal. So the director put me in the room with Jean to keep all the other women away. So. And what year would this have been? 1985. Wow. Okay. December at the Air and Space Museum. Wow. And, uh, my pet study in graduate school was etymology. It was word origins and poetry, and those just happened to be Jean's pet studies as well. So we ended up sitting in this room together playing word games and quoting poetry back and forth, and I was enchanted. I was just... He, he spoke French. He spoke Italian. He spoke Yiddish. He read a book a day. He was an economics major. He was... I always say he was this wonderful combination of erudite gentleman and Pittsburgh street kid and, <laughs> and his language reflected it and it was just I was just I'd listen to him tell stories about growing up in Pittsburgh during the depression and it was I was sold and uh, ultimately um, he brought ended up bringing me out to California to write his memoir and I was supposed to come for about two weeks to interview him and we ended up getting married five years into that process oh my gosh wow. So I recorded him almost every day in some format for over 10 years. And that's the extraordinary story that I have that really nobody else has. Mm -hmm. So if you go on IMDb or Wikipedia or any of these other things, it's generally inaccurate about him. And so I've been kind of slowly out there just trying to turn the tide just a bit. Just to correct everything, that what what is is perhaps the biggest maybe misconception that's out there or... Or non-truth, I guess, about Gene. The one thing that you see that you cringe about all the time. Over and over again, yeah. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because he really didn't... um, This is not so much misinformation as non-information. He really wanted to be remembered for being behind the camera, not in front of the camera, but for choreographing and directing. 
And a lot of people don't even realize he created what you're seeing on the screen. So they'll say to me, did he ever choreograph anything or did, did he ever direct? And they forget that he was directing Sing in the Rain and On the Town and Hello, Dolly. And um, I think the biggest misconception about him is that some of the accounts that are, are out there portray him as a really mean man, kind mm-hmm. of an as a... It's this emphasis on his, quote, perfectionism, which and he thought was just, he hated it when people called him a perfectionist in sort of a derogatory way. He was mm-hmm. like, why, do you go to a sloppy guy? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean, it's it just didn't make any sense to him. He said, why would a professional not be a perfectionist? You know, why would right. you not strive for that? So, and he was he was certainly tough, but he also, because he demanded this excellence of himself and of everyone else, but there there wasn't a mean streak and a kind of um, irrational kind of um, lashing out at people. And so I, <clears throat> I think that's important to correct that because he really was one of the most tender men I've ever known in my life. Yeah, I think even when in terms of task masking or, or any of those things, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, I, I'd seen this interview with Debbie Reynolds, how she was saying how, uh, singing in the rain was the most difficult job she's ever been in. But she said, you know, afterwards, you know, she said there's a reason. The reason she's worked this many decades in Hollywood is because of Gene Kelly. And I think that's the biggest compliment that you can get from, uh, obviously, a, an icon like her as well. Yeah, and it's, I mean, Debbie's great. She's, um, he made her a star. I mean, yeah. she, he, over uh, with that one movie and... Um, you know, there was no blood on the floor and all of the other details right. and everything. It's all quite, they're fanciful stories. But I think that really he 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 choreographed and created things to make all of his uh, co-workers look their best. And uh, right. whether it's Debbie Reynolds or Leslie Caron or... Or Sinatra, who didn't even dance right. at all. Exactly. And, um, so the one thing I, I had heard over and over again is that he brought an American style to to dance or to to cinema to the world to the masses through cinema would you agree with that and would you describe what that would be or what they're trying to convey well absolutely i'd agree with it because that's and that's really what he wanted to be remembered for most mm-hmm. was creating a particularly american style of dance and it all came out of pittsburgh your little hometown there yeah i'm uh, proud to be from i'm <laughs> proud that gene kelly's from there so yeah well it was interesting because he grew up in pittsburgh during the depression and his father sold columbia graphophones uh, was selling the records he was basically a traveling salesman and mm-hmm. The depression hit and he lost his job and it was not only death of a salesman but a radio was also coming in and so there was no need to purchase the things that he was selling and so like many of the men in Pittsburgh he was on the street um, drinking on the corner and Mm -hmm. out of a job and so Gene felt this tremendous hit. I mean, basically, overnight, his father was emasculated by the the economic situation. And Gene, it just hit him very, very hard. Mm-hmm. He was um, his Gene's idol. And so Gene said, I, d- I don't want to dance like rich people. I don't want to dance like on polished floors in white tie and tail. I want to I dance like people I know. And so he looked around and there was no model for it because mm-hmm. the dance was mostly a European tradition, and Jean, Jean studied with uh, the modern dancers, looking at what they were doing, and they were trying to break away from European tradition. So he agreed with that, but the style didn't fit with how does a man dance, how does a guy dance, and right? So he said he looked at what his favorite things were, and those were it was sports. So mm-hmm. he looked at baseball and hockey. And if you look at Gene's style of dance, it's very broad, wide open strokes, um, very low to the ground, and very reminiscent of all the sports that he played as a kid in Pittsburgh. Yeah, you were because I, I, I had seen your show. And by the way, what is the name of your show that you, you, you tour the country with? Yes. And now the world, it's going abroad. It's Gene Kelly, The Legacy. And it's right. a two and a half hour uh, show isn't even quite the right word. It's because I don't sing and dance. I let all, Gene do all of that. But it's a, I weave the stories that Gene uh, revealed to me among these beautiful 
film clips, and then he used to sing to me at night. That was often how he revealed the most intimate parts of his life. So I have these very rare recordings of him, and I literally unpack his belongings on stage. And just so folks know, and if they do want to see this, what is a website that they could be directed to to find out information if this is coming to their town? It'd be great to go to genekelly.com and subscribe, and then you'll find out when the next uh, shows are coming. Or you can request it and, and make suggestions. So I did go to the show. I did see it. Because which... I was asking her uh, mm-hmm. how you guys met, like what that scenario was, because... She actually came to your show, came she, to Sullivan and she Son. She came to Sullivan and Son, and I asked her for her blessing. And the third season, we actually had a picture right. of Gene Kelly on the set by the office because I knew there was so much <laughs> foot traffic there that he'd be getting some FaceTime. I don't know if he'd be embarrassed to be on a sitcom on TBS, but from our perspective, from a little bar in Pittsburgh, we had to pay homage to sure. Obviously a legend. I think it's a great idea, and he used to dance on the bar tops in the bars in Pittsburgh. Oh, that's great. Well, I did go see the show. It was fascinating. Even if you're you're just flipping through on Turner Classics and you happen to see it, you go back, you go see the show, and you learn so much, and you appreciate the man and his body of work. And what I appreciated that you said early on is that he played hockey. I love hockey. And so he had this low center of gravity in his dance, which I, I never knew he was a hockey player. And it makes sense when you saw that uh, that one film he did where he was roller, roller skating. skating. Well, he was uh, he actually wanted to be a professional hockey player, but there was no professional team at the time. It was like the it was the Hornets or Yellow I think Jackets. So, yeah. And so he said they used to play. His father used to ice the backyard in the winter, and they'd they'd scoot around. Uh, and then they used to play hockey on Homewood Cemetery when it froze. And wow. Gene said you'd beat the bejesus out of each other. And <laughs> he was small for his age and small in general. And he said he had to he had to really scoot around. He said you just poke check your mother if she got in the way. Um, <laughs> so it was it was tough. And he was he he really did want to be a hockey player. And his father said, "Look, you'll just be cleaning the ice when you're 30 because there's no future in that." And right. he wanted to be shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he said he was a dazzler in the field. He could reach up and grab anything. He he could leap as high as anybody. And but he said he was the kind who had, you had to bunt over because he couldn't hit. He said, "I couldn't hit the <laughs> curve." So, so he gave up on that, and, and then he wanted to be a priest. And wow. And then girls kind of got in the way of that. So. <laughs> He's a very good-looking guy. I mean, oh, very God. charming, great smile. Oh, he was utterly, he was so handsome. And handsome in a very, I think, kind of a unique way. He was not only handsome, but he had a kind of beauty in his face. And, uh, yeah, they don't make many of them. Like no, that. there's a reason There's he's a marquee movie star. But when we were talking earlier about, you know, that every man, that blue-collar movie star um, it was it Thousands Cheer was his first piece where he's dancing with the broom, he's dancing with the mop, mop. and he's in jeans and a and a white t-shirt, and that was representative of I think of an introduction not only to Gene for for the masses but for what's to come because he wasn't Fred Astaire, he wasn't in coattails and a top hat, he was the everyman. Exactly, and what you see in that, well, you see him dancing on the bar. That's what he did in in Pittsburgh and and the outlying areas, and and then you see the gymnastics. He was on the gymnastics team at Peabody High School, and so he does these incredible nip ups and things that are, and does them on roller skates, and so. But I I do want to ask you this because with you know ballet was a big part of his repertoire as well. He just. It, is it uncommon for a dancer to be able to do everything like Gene was able to do? Because everything I've read or seen, it seems like he literally could do everything, whereas someone might specialize in tap and someone might specialize in ballet. But he seemed to, did he study everything? Or is, it just, is he just one of those naturally gifted gentlemen that could could do everything, and there's a reason why we're talking about him today. Well, it was kind of a combination. I mean, he, yes, he was innately very gifted, and any kind of movement came very, very easy to him. So uh, he he was an acrobat. He could walk, walk a tightrope. Um, he could really any anything um, 
that he approached, but he did study classical ballet. He was classically trained. He studied Spanish dance. He studied jazz or absorbed. A lot of what he did is he went to the traveling acts that came through Pittsburgh that that would go to Altoona and Pittsburgh, <laughs> and he would run down and catch everything he could and just was like a little sponge. He'd absorb everything. And then he would take what he needed from all these things, including the sports, and then crafted his own art form. So it it was a combination, but I think... You don't find, I think I've described someone like Gene as, as a comet. Um, it's something that kind of comes along once mm-hmm. and not very often. And to have a, you know, not only a triple threat, uh, it was singing, dancing, acting, directing, choreographing, producing, writing. Um, that's, you don't see that broad spectrum. And even when he was casting, for some some of the movies, for example, Hello Dolly, to to cast some of the the other roles in that, it was very hard for him to p- find people who could sing and dance and act. And I think that still is a bit of a challenge. I think it's it's less difficult now as more people are moving into that. But to find and then to find somebody with that that you know ineffable spark, that mm-hmm. thing that transcends. You can sing and dance and act, but you don't have that. It thing that right, but who would you say? Because we were talking about this uh, a couple nights ago. Who would you say now, current day, is somebody that maybe isn't a triple threat, but somebody that has two of the three? Somebody maybe that he idolizes or he would look at and say, "Wow, that's that's somebody that I I see in me." Like, who, who is there? Somebody out there right now that could be that person? I I'd say. Um... Hugh Jackman is a good uh, song and dance man and a really charming, wonderful man, and I think has that certainly has that quality that that quality that grabs people. Uh, I think Robert Downey Jr. has mm. a lot of it uh, as a musician and uh, dancer and an actor. And I actually uh, t- talked to him once. I said that. Gene really admired him as a performer, and and he said, you know, it's so strange. But just today, I was saying that I wished I'd apprenticed with Gene Kelly, and I, I think that would have been an extraordinary combination. Wow. Um, I, you know, I think some of the others, it's we're we're seeing a lot of young dancers moving in and moving into roles where they're going to be singing and and acting. Um, and I, I think we'll just keep watching and see who else comes out. I mean, Derek Huff is about to open and sing in the rain on Broadway next year. And oh wow! So that and what? What about like a like a Michael Jackson or a Justin Timberlake, somebody like that? Well, uh, Michael definitely um, was extraordinary. Gene said he was like an electric eel and so so gifted. Uh, he just flamed out. Um, Gregory Hines, extraordinary. Across the board, he was definitely a triple threat and gone too young. And um, Justin Timberlake is lovely and and definitely admired <laughs> admires Gene and and uh, I think is moving in some of those directions. So I think it's it's interesting to see if they there's so much pressure to make so much money now that to take risks and do things and develop different things. It's it, it's hard. I think people get pressured into the business side of things and generating millions of dollars as opposed to creating a particularly new art form or even musicals. Musicals are so expensive to make. And I wish somebody would really look at that instead of just regurgitating what's been done would actually create new new materials and things. I think they're doing some of that like with Hamilton and things like that. Yeah. Well, even... Um on the town was he. That was his first direct. He, Correct. He, he directed on the town. That was his first directorial debut, Correct. and he's in charge of everything. And I've read some things where they said that film changed musicals forever. Uh, is that something you would agree with? And if yes. so, again, why? Gene often he was always asked what was his favorite movie, and he would often cite that. He, mm-hmm. Even though he said I really liked Three Musketeers, he loved the sword play yeah. and Daring Do and. Uh, the whimsy of Three Musketeers, but On the Town was the first movie musical to be shot on location mm-hmm. in New York City. And the opening sequence. Yeah, and that really broke new ground. That that no one had ever dared to do that, mm-hmm. and and it also broke ground with Technicolor, which is interesting because 
usually Technicolor could only be shot in certain light situations, and wasn't you weren't you, you really weren't allowed to shoot in low light, mm -hmm. and they had uh, advisors there on set, and they would say yes, you can shoot, or no, you can't, and they had the scene where the ship is pulling it out. Um, that ship wasn't going to come back and do another take. And so, <laughs> so you got to get, get it. So yeah. it, it had to get it. And Gene uh, was down by the ship, and um, his co-director, Stanley Donnan, was up on the boom with the cameraman and the cinematographer, and Gene and said, roll it, it's got to go. And so the, the camera operator actually turned the the clapboard upside down to show that uh, he was shooting under, it was against his... Um, oh wow! Judgment to do it, and Gene said they came back sure that they had nothing in the can, and in fact, it turned out to be beautiful, and that then changed the way Technicolor film was used in the future. Wow! And he worked with Sinatra. What was? It seems like everything I've seen online or video clips, they there was a real admiration between those two gentlemen. Um, what was Gene's oh, yeah. perception or or thoughts on Sinatra? Well, they loved each other, and it was really. And uh, Gene said they were closer than brothers, and I fortunately got to experience that friendship. He was incredibly kind to me, and mm -hmm. at one point, I remember when I f had first moved in with Gene, I walked into the study. He was on the chair, in his chair, talking on the phone, and he said to Frank, he said, I got this new girl, and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm the new girl, and <laughs> Gene's talking to Frank Sinatra. It's all a little surreal, but he was a, a terribly generous man, very kind, and did many, many things to help us out that were completely unstated, and no mm -hmm. one knew. Um, he helped me uh, when Gene got sick, um, I c we couldn't fly back on a commercial airline, and he rented a plane and flew Gene oh, back. Wow. And just he was just um, they were very much alike, which is kind of interesting. I think Gene um, Gene was able to hold his temper sometimes a little bit better, maybe than Frank. But they had this same sense of of this pursuit of excellence, mm -hmm. and really didn't tolerate. Um, people who were not working that hard and they, they were charming together and yeah. I think when you see them on on screen it's it's such a charming um, twosome I mean they really are funny and when they're playing a, they're playing um, against type so you've got Gene is the the wolf you know getting all the girls and and Frank can't get a girl well the contrary was yeah. happening I mean <laughs> Frank couldn't walk on the streets so um, it, it's. I just. I love them. I love seeing the two of them. Together. That's what they were saying too about on the town is that they had to start wrapping up the filming relatively fast because it, I mean word was getting out that you know remember they were showing them filming mm -hmm. and they were only there for a couple of days right I mean they were and then they brought it they wrapped it up I mean it was a very quick shoot it seemed like in New York it, it was very short but it and it was true that they they you know they didn't have permits for anything so they were just racing to oh, wow. one site to the next and would jump out they'd stuff frank on the bottom of a taxi cab and and then would race to the next spot and they had a camera um in the back of a station wagon gene would pop out he had a little stopwatch to to check the the meter and then They'd th do the number, throw Frank back on the floor, and race <laughs> to the next place. And you do see them. You see the crowds beginning to gather there. Yeah. And, and, and the studio wanted them to film at a studio here in California. Like, I didn't think that they were they, – they wanted them to film. But they said, hey, we need to do it out here. This has to be a movie actually shot in New York. That, yeah, Gene really pushed for that. He had been in the real Navy and uh, had actually gone around and scouted all the locations. Uh, he scouted the locations with a guy named Julius Epstein, who was one of the writers for Casablanca, and they went around. and And then Gene, since he was in the Navy, had an entree to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, so they were able to shoot there, which nobody else could do. So. But it is crazy what you said a, a few minutes ago with regard to whatever he was doing, whether it was acting, directing, whatever it was, he really wanted perfection. And so other people looked at it as him ball busting or just being a pain. And, and it was really just him wanting the perfect product because at the end of the day, without him, there's not 300 other people working. There's not a product. There's, I mean, so when you hear about other people uh, who, who have shows or other things, like you know, they say that that person's a pain in the butt, but the truth is, Without that person wanting it to be exactly what they're looking for, there's no jobs for 
the 300 other people that are working under them? Well, there are no jobs. And then I think also, I think one of the reasons, it may be one of the reasons we're still watching these movies 65, 75 years later. I mean, that they're holed up um, was because they were precise and it's you have to really consider the source of a lot of the comments about this kind of um, arbitrary uh, toughness and taskmaster and everything because if you if you talk to the animators with whom Gene worked when he did Jerry the Mouse mm-hmm. right I mean they know that it's all about precision it's it's like and, and like Gene said if I don't hit my mark it has to be done again because the camera is coordinated. It's all done to musical beats. And if if he somehow ends up in a different spot or the camera ends up in a different spot, you don't have the shot. And so it's it's kind of crazy, this notion of that it's that there's something negative about being precise. And I think if you talk to the musicians, I interviewed a lot of the musicians after Gene died, and they they loved him because he got it. He was there when they were recording. I interviewed Yuan Racy, the trumpet soloist in Sing in the Rain, American Paris, extraordinary. And all you get from them is a very different story. You get a man of great generosity and kindness and um, just art, artistry. So I think you have to really kind of consider where the... Well, even as an artist, you got to think when he's doing that that dance sequence where he's dancing with his alter ego right. and they had to chalk outline the steps and because he had to hit the beats because they're filming one sequence then mirroring the other sequence and all those you know today you could do it with computers but back then everything's with a stopwatch and i think that there would be people back in the day that would say it's too complicated we can't do it whereas the perfectionist or the artist or the person that really cares says well we can do this and we're going to do it. We're going to figure it out. And it's going to be awesome. And there's a reason why those are the things we're talking about today, I think. Well, I think there's that's what distinguishes something that's groundbreaking versus continuing. And, and the director of that particular movie, CoverGirl, didn't think that number was possible. So he shut down production and, and left. And so it was... Oh, wow. So, so it was Harry Cohn, the head of the studio, who believed in Gene and let them go ahead and do that very, very difficult number, which, as you say, computer, you just duplicate what he did, but he had to actually do the number. Then they had to go back and drape the whole set in black velvet and recreate it. And so he had to perform in total blackness. And he, at one point, has to even jump over himself. And so they had to put a bar with black velvet that he could leap over and and the camera operator has to figure out you know where is gene it's not right. it's not like having somebody um he, he had to move the camera without really knowing where things were going to be same with jerry the mouse and that's an instance where again the director could say oh gene kelly's being difficult but gene kelly actually saw something that's not possible that is possible and i don't see that as difficult i see that as again groundbreaking and there's a reason and, we're talking and, about him today. And, and it's interesting because w- when we were watching the Jerry the Mouse segment, the original was trying to get, uh, wasn't it Mickey Mouse? Like that was, it, but they said no. And then afterwards, they couldn't believe how unique and creative it was. Well, and, that's a little bit of it. There's a little bit of mythology around that because they say that they turned it down. But actually, Gene and Stanley Donnan went to meet with Walt Disney and he loved the concept and uh, was very supportive of it, but he was too had too much work at the Disney studio for the war effort. So he then uh, made the call back to MGM and recommended the project. So they were able to go forward with the Hanna-Barbera studio that was under MGM's umbrella. So it's not true that they said no and you can't have Mickey or anything. It was it was just that it wasn't feasible to do it. But it is it is phenomenal and. And again, a lot of people said, no, it's not possible, or live action and animation. Um, it was very, had been done very primitively, but Gene took it to another, another level. And uh, his first starring role was opposite Judy Garland, is that correct? Right, right. And so there seemed to be a real affinity that Gene felt for Judy as well. Are there any thoughts that he had in terms uh, of working with her? He loved her, and he really credited her with giving him a career in the movies because... Uh, when he came on that first picture, the director, Busby Berkeley, really wouldn't give him the time of day. Uh, Gene said afterward he, he definitely warmed up and they became <laughs> good friends. But 
initially he wouldn't tell Jean anything, and so Judy just took him under her wing, and Jean thought she was the brightest woman in Hollywood and also the sexiest woman, which I think is wonderful because so often she's referred to as the ugly duckling, and I mean, literally in the press, in the the Hollywood, say the equivalent of the Hollywood Reporter, was considered an ugly uh, person. Jean thought she was gorgeous, and he said she had this mind that was so bright and so fast she could she could see anything and memorize it and had this extraordinary knowledge of all of the Tin Pan Alley songs and so she she basically told him how to perform in front of a camera and and um he he felt that he owed her quite a bit for that always yeah um what who was now Stanley Donnan was his collaborator uh, they were a partnership is that correct he started as an assistant and and then yes Gene uh, brought him on as a co-director Gene's mm-hmm. the first named director and and Stanley came on and it was essential for what Gene was doing because of the need for this kind of precision to have somebody behind the camera who had an understanding of musical beats because they were coordinating the movement of the camera with Gene's movement. Right. So the camera operators and dolly operators didn't necessarily understand music and how to coordinate this. So Gene needed somebody, um, an assistant behind the camera to be able to say, yes, you hit the mark. Yes, the camera was on its mark. And he had three, um, Carol Haney, who went on to do Pajama Game, and Jeannie Coyne, who went on to be his second wife, and then Stanley. And they were all behind the camera watching different elements of things. And then ultimately, Gene uh, felt that Stanley uh, deserved the credit to bring him up um, into the co-director position. And so, and then he had an extraordinary career on his own after that. Now I forget the film. I, I don't want to. I don't want to bury my head in my notebook because I could literally ask you a thousand things. But there, one of my favorite dance sequences, just personally, was when he's dancing with the creaky floorboard yeah. and the newspaper. And I years ago, when I was in New York City, I went and saw Stomp, and Stomp is using garbage cans and everyday items to make music and dance. And Again, that was you could look at what Gene did in that thing and think, oh well, yeah, I just saw. Some, but that was another first. Is that correct? Where nobody had ever done anything like that, and it's just a a piece that that looks like it's out of nothing, and it's just a man that is just making <laughs> something incredible, literally out of nothing. Right. Well, and and that was. Uh... Yes, it's a great piece, and Gene said that when he looked back at it, he realized that the um, the great hero of his youth, Buster Keaton, had influenced that, that uh. that had seeped in in, in that type of comedic movement and but yeah Gene was tearing newspapers he was he he did the dance in it's always fair weather with the trash can lids and mm-hmm. so he was all these things that you see on Broadway now um, they had a a little bit of a, a head start with Gene and I always loved at the end of some like like in that piece or at the end of singing in the rain but but especially that piece that we're talking about right now is that he picks up the newspaper and on his way out he's reading it and then the floorboard <laughs> creaks and it's just such a great comedic moment right. and even at the end of singing in the rain he has this incredible dance sequence and he walks off and he says goodbye to the cop and gives he the gives umbrella. the umbrella to right. the guy and it's just those little pieces that sure. that uh, it just complements it and it makes it a whole piece uh now, Singing in the Rain, obviously, it's so iconic. Was that one of his favorite pieces, or what was his favorite musical number that he did, that he well, was most proud of? I think he um, he loved the newspaper dance in Summerstock. I think he um, I think he realized that that had something very special. He loved the ballet in American in Paris, mm-hmm. um, which was, again, revolutionary. No one had conceived of a 17 and a half minute ballet to end a movie at that point and uh, he loved the as I say the daring do of, of, of three musketeers I think some of the pirate some of the things in the pirate um, the roller skating number he used to roller skate in amateur nights around Pittsburgh and cross the Ohio line and go and perform and he and his younger brother uh, had this act where they wore um, plus fours, the kind of short pants, and mm-hmm. had slick back hair, and they'd go do the 
um, there they did the nip-ups and things on skates, but that's, so what he does in that movie is a variation, uh, he said is kind of a tamed down va- version of what he was doing in the amateur nights. And they they would pass, um, the, the head guy would pass his hand over their heads and it was based on applause. So whoever got the greatest amount of applause would get the dollar or five dollars if it was Butler, Pennsylvania. Right. So he said he'd, they'd usually win unless there was an accord, Italian accordion player. <laughs> <laughs> they'd see the accordion and they'd be like, let's get out of here. Yeah. Well, it's, it's exactly because they'd bring their entire uh, clack, you know, to bring their, everybody there. So um, uh, the I Got Rhythm number, he he uh, directed and choreographed that for American in Paris. So, the, and then there's some the one on the construction scene that um, people oh, never yeah. see. That's again a, the basis of all of the childhood games that he played on the streets in Pittsburgh and then the gymnastics. So there are a lot. I mean, I'm there's so many that I love too. I mean, it's what it's, is your favorite? I've just named all of them oh, that, in a sense <laughs> yeah. because it's. I don't. People always say, well, "What's your favorite movie?" And I don't. I just love the numbers, and I've put mm-hmm. most of those in my show. Is um, I, I just and I watch them. It's so funny. And the, when you're talking about that squeaky board, and the, mm-hmm. I know when that's coming. And so I'm sitting there on the stool as the audience is watching, and it's just such an amazing feeling when the audience he and then they just <laughs> they all laugh. I mean, yeah. and, and it's. It's just so fresh. It's like it's it's um, it's so old and yet it's so fresh. It's an incredible callback to literally what started the piece, and then it instigates this whole dance sequence, and then it's an afterthought as he walks off and he's reading the newspaper, which I, I loved as a as a comic. I, um, it's crazy though because too, as as you're watching any of his dance numbers, he makes it look so easy, so easy, and that's why I think you know for everybody watching, you're like. Hey, I can go do that. It's almost like when you, I was almost comparing it to when you watch a Rocky movie and he's getting ready <laughs> to, to, to fight somebody and he's out there on the beach running and you're like, you leave the theater like, I'm going to go beat the shit out of somebody. <laughs> and then you go home and you just start watching TV and you don't do it. Like he yeah. makes it look so easy that, I mean, that's, that's the simplicity to the whole thing, right? It's just like the way he did it. It was just awesome. Well, he said it was. It's very hard to make it look so simple. It's it's takes a lot of, and in fact, the simplest numbers are the hardest. He said to create because it's it's almost easier to create a big slam bam number, but uh, more difficult to create a simple one. But it's funny. He used to in your neck of the woods. He used to. Uh, he performed in some of the what he called cloops and clubs in mm-hmm. Chicago, and they he would sing songs like um, you know Irish songs, and then it's great to be Irish, and and then they would make him do stand-up comedy to kind of um, oh wow make him fill the time yeah, and he hated it. He said it was so hard. He said it was the hardest job. Um, he thought uh, a comedian's job was very, very, very difficult, and um, he never—he he, wasn't—he was very funny to me. He would break me up with funny little gags and funny looks. You see mm-hmm. some of those in the pirate, and you see these funny <laughs> little things he does with his eyes, and um, and he would crack me up. I'd be on the floor, but it wasn't that kind of on. Um, but he just—he—he he really. Um, when he would watch a Billy Crystal or a Robin Williams or a Jonathan Winters, I mean, mm-hmm. it just had such extraordinary respect for them and what they were doing and how difficult it was. And well, if he came to one of our shows, he'd see how easy it is. <laughs> I think, to be very fair with you, he, he, he had these things <laughs> see like the people walking out. You know, these there used to be things like I come clean from Pittsburgh, and um, what were some of the others like? <laughs> Um, I'm a little stiff from bowling. I don't care where, where the hell you're from. And, right. I mean, it was like this whole run of these Pittsburgh Altoona jokes and yeah. Tarantum. And um, and then there were kind of, uh, there was somebody, I, I'm hoping that someday somebody, would, I, I can't remember jokes, so I remember the punchlines and so I'm hoping someday someone will be able to help me fill in the jokes that he told well, me. Well, Gary has no punchlines, so don't <laughs> no, worry about or that. Jokes. <laughs> or jokes. Or jokes at all, yeah. I'm curious, what kind of person was he at home? Just behind the door 
at home Friday night. Like what? What, what you was step that outside like? as a movie star? Yeah, you shut the door in the living room. Yeah, very counter to what everyone imagines. They all think he's what you see up on the screen. And his best, his idea of a really good time was to sit at home uh, in front of the fire, listening to Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra, drinking a gin and tonic uh, or vodka tonic, and. Uh, and uh, listening to the music and then reading a great book. Um, and reading a book to Gene meant um, he would say, you know, I think I want to reread all of Charles Dickens. And so I would go out and get all of Charles Dickens. And then he'd say, I'd, I'd like to reread all of Evelyn Waugh. Or, um, he loved mysteries. He loved Elmore Leonard m- mysteries. and But he was very cerebral, just to be home, quiet, away. Um, it it was very hard for him, and he kind of um, the publicity element of being a public person. The fact that if we walked out of the front door, there was a tour bus following us, and you know there goes Gene Kelly and his young wife, and then there the trolley started down Rodeo Drive, and um, it just if you go out to dinner, then people would come and up to the table all the time, and um, and. I think he escaped a lot because it was just at the beginning of cell phones and things. But mm-hmm. now, now essentially, there's no privacy whatsoever. Right. But I think um, he recognized the kind of dichotomy that that he said basically that people own you. They they pay they buy their ticket and they feel that they own you. And he said, and to some degree, I mean, you really do owe where you are to the public, but mm-hmm. there's, there was a great sense of him of wanting to kind of run and hide and to not constantly be on. So to be home and not be on was his idea of a really good evening. Was it interesting for you because he had always been in that limelight, people coming up, wanting to meet him, this and the other thing, but then you now are are thrown into his world so is it, it did that take some getting used to for you because you know and, and then i'm i'm sure there are times where you just want to enjoy dinner and then again it goes back to that same thing of where you tell somebody hey listen can we just do this later and then now he then has a perception of like oh hey i met him he wasn't a nice guy see that yeah. all you know what i mean like did that affect you? You have you guys to be go- very very careful what you do in public sure. because just to i i know at one point he was he was at an event honoring other people, and somebody came up and asked for his autograph, and he felt that the spotlight should have been on the person next to him, not on not on himself, And but then he got a negative thing about that. So I, for me, I, I mean, Roddy McDowell, I don't know if you remember Roddy, the actor, um, he said, oh, my dear, he said, you were like Alice falling down the rabbit hole, and I, it really was not my <laughs> world. I mean, I... I grew up in Colorado and had no aspiration to be in Hollywood, and I found it a very, very tricky place. And um, you know, I was I was often poke checked out of the way. You know, people trying to get at Gene, and or people would completely forget that. It's funny. I meet people now, and they'll say, "Oh my gosh, I had dinner with your husband. It was amazing." And I'll say, "Yeah, there were four of us. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I was right at the table." Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear like how he would spend his time and read all these books and these novels. Steve and I literally get together and we watch The Bachelor. That's our. <laughs> you know, you don't have to tell him that. Well, he um... would watch. He loved. He loved Monday Night Football. He loved baseball. And when I first came out here to, um, when he first asked me to come out to talk about the job we watched the um the precursor of the world series and gene talked about the connection between classical ballet and baseball and and we had um boiled hot dogs and (laughs) it was with he you know this was a guy who i mean this is a guy who'd been all around the world um and been with kings and queens and presidents and his favorite food was a fried bologna sandwich wow and a cold that's, that's mashed Pittsburgh. potato sandwich. <laughs> there you and, go. <laughs> and those nasty little wieners in a can. And ugh, you know. So. <laughs> can I ask you this? Uh, so, so, look, everybody. The iconic film that, that I think they'll associate with Gene is Singing in the Rain. Right. Um, when it first came out, though, initially it wasn't as beloved as we know it today. Correct. And over time, the critics did come back around to it. Can you ask, Can you can you allude to why that might have been at the time? And then, 
Can you also tell us why do you feel that Singing in the Rain has stood the test of time and become known as the greatest musical of all time? It's hard to... I mean, when they made these movies, they never thought anyone would ever look at them again. I mean, they weren't creating them thinking that there would be this posterity that... Because for some of them, television didn't exist, and certainly not DVDs and VHS and mm-hmm. Blu-ray. And, uh, it comes out and it's gone. Yeah, right? it was just uh, they weren't thinking about it being 70 years down the line. Right. American in Paris came out in 1951, so the year before Sing in the Rain, and it just swept everything. It just kind of took the world by storm. And, and he got an honorary Oscar for that correct. film, is that correct? For his work, just the, the Academy had to notice him for right. what he accomplished. Yeah, he didn't get nominated, and so uh, they they acknowledged him for the breadth of his work. And But I think that, uh, as they said, that Singing in the Rain just um, took a deep second place, if even that, and only one person really thought it was going to have us kind of lasting was Adolph Green, one of the writers. Mm-hmm. And um, I th- I traveled around uh, the U.S. with Rita Moreno, the great Rita Moreno, um, who plays the small. She's got a small role in the picture, but she plays Zelda and she does it beautifully. And we were traveling around for the 60th anniversary of Singing in the Rain, and people kept asking her, "Why is this? Why are we still watching this? Why mm-hmm. is this considered so great?" And she said because it's a perfect musical. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is that um, the writing, the Betty Comden and Adolph Green script is so smart and it's so current. And and I think one of the things that Gene always said to me, he said, the real hard thing is to create something that's both contemporary and timeless. Mm -hmm. And his choreography is still what people are going to today. So people still go to Singing in the Rain as the go-to thing. And it's because it isn't dated. I mean, even though it's a period piece, Mm -hmm. the choreography is cool and hot. And Gene is definitely cool and hot. I mean, he's... (laughs) He just gets better with age. I think it's really interesting that he he doesn't he doesn't decline and um, and I think just the smartness of it and the beautiful production and you know a beautiful the Technicolor cinematography is great. It's directed beautifully and um, obviously the performances. When you have a Gene Hagen, who's just talk about uh, comedy. I mean, she was extraordinary in that. Mm-hmm. And as Gene said, the glue that he felt really held the picture together. Donald O'Connor, Gene thought, was one of the greatest improvisational comedians of all time. And much of, of what you see in that, it was just kind of Donald breaking people up on the set. And then Gene took it and put it together and, and made the numbers out of it. Yeah, there's a scene where he runs up the wall. Right. I mean, that's some... I, I, I had to go back and watch it. I didn't believe it. I think he did it twice, actually. He was. Gene said that that was um, the. And this is again diverges from the a lot of the stories, but that Donald would would sit while they're waiting for them to change lights and things. He would just crack up all of the assistants on the stage. He'd pick up a dummy and start playing with it and. And then they'd say, Donald, do that thing again that you did. And he couldn't remember what he did. And so Gene, <laughs> Gene and his, had his two assistants, Carol Haney and Jeannie Coyne, start writing down what Donald was doing. And then they put it on a drum beat. Actually, Gene put it on a drum beat and created um, the Make Him Laugh number. And oh, when wow. he had to do the backflips, he had done those as a traveling act as a, uh, a young man, but had lost his kind of gotten a fear of doing it, so they brought his brother in to come and rehearse with him to get to do the backflips. Well, you know, when we think back on the 20th century, you think Muhammad Ali, Babe Ruth, all these incredible athletes. I would think after watching all these musicals and all the incredible work that Gene, how is he not revered as an athlete? Because obviously as an athlete, you're you're judged by your stats or your wins (laughs) and losses, whereas... Gene Kelly, I would put right there, up there with one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century when you watch his work. And then, of course, there was Dancing a Man's Game that he had done where he was celebrating the physicality and the art of sports 
and how it is very similar and analogous to dance as well. Would you speak about that a bit? Well, it, it's interesting because, I mean, he would give you a big hug for what you just said because he definitely saw dance as as an athletic event. And, right. But he he fought great prejudice against it and was he would get beaten up every day when he came home from dancing school as a little boy and, and had to fight all of the... the the sense that it was a sissy thing. And he said even when he was little, he thought it was for sissies. And mm-hmm. and then he began to understand that it w- really was the athleticism. And when he began to design his own dance, it was very different. And you know, it's funny, I was watching Dancing with the Stars a couple years ago, and they had Emmett Smith on, and they said... You know, he makes it okay for men to dance. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I think somebody started yeah. that a little bit sooner. <laughs> but, I, uh, you know, it's amazing that it still is even a question. Uh, a lot of people don't see dancers as athletes, and they absolutely are. And it is interesting because a lot of athletes who are on Dancing with the Stars end up winning. Uh, usually, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, in a lot of them, um, Willie Galt went to take a ballet class and Lynn Swan um, and a lot yeah. of the great um, athletes then, they recognize the connection between the coordination and the and this thing that we're all calling perfectionism <laughs> that, you know, if, if a football player goes out for a pass and isn't where he needs to be at the time, you know, do, does that work? I mean, right. doesn't that require a degree of precision? <laughs> do, you, do you think if Dancing with the Stars were around years ago, would Gene have accepted a judging job on that show? Would he have sat next to Len and Carrie and Anaba? <laughs> or Bruno? Bruno. Bruno. You're right, 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 right. When I saw Bruno, he actually got on his knees on the ground in front of me, bowing. He loves Gene. I mean, they, he's basically Gene was his idol. That's what's so interesting is, and same with Len. He just said, "I this is what I grew up with," and Carrie Ann, obviously. And I think. What's interesting is that Gene kept waiting for the next guy to come over the horizon. He kept saying, he, I mean, he he wanted more people to come. He wanted to see more people who were triple, quadruple, quintuple threats. And there just there isn't this great mass of people coming. And and I think um, you know, contrary to this notion that he had such a huge ego that he only wanted that for himself, it was he really wanted this to continue and to look for new people and so i i think um it it, it's uh what's interesting is that he is still so relevant i mean he died 20 years ago in february and i i think he's still the go-to guy and i meet i meet dancers all around the world ballet companies hip-hop dancers jazz tap dancers and they're all like oh my god he's my Hero. I mean, I just had all the cast of Dirty Dancing at my house and oh, Bullets wow. over Broadway and and the whole Australian ballet and San Francisco ballet and it's a big house. It's not a big house. <laughs> it's not a big house, but we squeeze them in. And by the way, Steve and I, when we go out on the road after about eight beers, we think we're good dancers too. We start throwing. <laughs> I, I think that's what a I, lot of people do think. Actually, I have I have two questions. First okay. of all, well, I, uh, I want to say something to that because yes. you look back. At what Jean was wearing, and you know, you you roll up the khakis or the jeans, and you expose the white socks, and you got the loafers, and that's Michael Jackson. I think Michael Jackson took a nod from Gene Kelly as well, obviously, in terms of the look. Well, it was funny because when Michael died, the newspapers were all saying that he uh, was the first to have that look. And oh, if no. you look back, it's like, no, I think somebody was there before that. It was the same like when Robert Roger Rabbit came out. Gene yeah. was reading the L.A. Times, and it said, you know, the first ever live action and animation. And Gene's going, mm, no, did that before. But yeah. Uh, no, Michael definitely. Michael, uh, uh, talk about a, a sponge. He absorbed everything of Gene's. He had mm-hmm. watched him when we went to meet with him. We had dinner with him one night, and he stood up and he had memorized all of Gene's very obscure television specials. He got up and did a version of Ball on the Jack that was spot on, even with like canting his hat. And he, he, I mean, he just absorbed everybody's performance. But there's so much Gene Kelly in him, yeah. Well, as we come towards the finish line, I do want to ask you this. How how do you feel the world should remember Gene Kelly? Well, I do think that it's very important to remember. Th- I, 
it's he's great up on the screen mm-hmm. and it's and wonderful and I think that will always be with us. I think that's not going to d- d- diminish in any way. But I think it's really important to remember him as the creator of what you're seeing and mm-hmm. that that it was so revolutionary and so ahead of its time and and um, really was breaking new ground and that and that here was a guy who who did count excellence as something that was important and that you strive for that and and that you um, set a certain standard and mm-hmm. that and that then maybe things do hang around and have legs and but I also think it's important to remember that he was the breadth of this man I mean the real intellectual emotional um, physical breadth of him that he was you know, he was a song and dance man, but he was so much more. He was so bright and and I think really a gentleman and mm-hmm. a gentleman with tremendous humility. And that's what I saw. And as I said, great tenderness. And so um, I think one of the great uh, romantics. And I think that's we're a little we're losing a sense of that. And I, I would love to see a lot more. Yeah. I was going to ask, uh, what was what was his biggest indulgence, favorite indulgence? Some people like cars. Tr- what was his? What would you say if you know? What did he love? I uh, loved. Um, he loved. <laughs> he loved cookies. Um, <laughs> he loved cookies, and he'd go through like a cookie when it was. When I first met him, it was like Oreo cookies, and then it went to little, you know, Dutch sugar cookie. I mean, it was so interesting <laughs> as he'd go through these little cookie things, and and I wasn't a cookie person, but he he loved food. Um, he loved he loved like a great um, sandwich with a dill pickle and a beer, a great beer. I mean, it was like. And then he would, but he would also love a really beautiful red wine mm-hmm. with a chocolate with some, you know, he was just, he, he had such a, a love for these things that whether it was something that was really high end or if it was a salami sandwich kind of. Yeah, like the bologna sandwich. The bologna, yeah. yeah. But if you had that with a great beer and a pickle, and I mean, he was in heaven. He was absolutely in heaven. And looking back at your time with him, and I, I know that you spent a lot of time with him and have so many different memories, but what, looking back, what is the one memory that always stands out that makes you smile? Oh, there, there really are so many, but I do, I, um, I think it's the, I think it's the romantic side, the and the kind of humor, the the gentle humor, the things that he, he would break me up. But you have to think. I mean, this is a guy who would wake me up in the middle of the night just to go out on our balcony to look at the full moon, and you know that's just that just stays in your mind. You can't, and you think of it every day because you're looking up at that sky and you just see it. And so it's a, um, and as I've said in the show, he was really unhappy that people walked on the moon. So. Because for him, it was kind of inviolable. It was a, a symbol of romance. See, if I woke my wife up, she'd be like, get away from me. <laughs> I'm sleeping, you son of a bitch. Well, as we come to the finish line, I've got to say this. We cannot thank you enough. Amazing. GeneKelly.com. Great. Go see the show, The Legacy. You're touring. Are there cities that you have coming up soon that you know are on the docket? Well, I have more. We've, we're booking more European cities and maybe okay. South America. So, um, and we'll have some of those dates very shortly. So, and people, as I say, can also send a note if they would like it to come to a city. Then we often. It's kind of. I always say, if you if you build it, I will come. Um, <laughs> and uh, they can also go on Gene Kelly, The Legacy, on Facebook uh, to see. I've been posting. I started posting little bits of information, things that Gene shared with me that, that people don't necessarily know. Yeah, I follow your posts. And what is the Facebook page for this? Gene Kelly, The Legacy. So, And every, like it seems like once every few days you post a fun little tidbit or a nugget right. based on a scene and you'll post the picture. And it's really fun. It, I think the last one, it was about, well, the, one of the last ones I saw was Singing in the Rain and you were discussing the milk Right, that in there's the, no milk in the water, which no is the, the biggest myth. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's fun because I have so much information. I mean, you can imagine the hours of recordings. And and so I thought it'd be kind of fun to begin to debunk some of the myths, but also just reveal some of the things that were important to him or, 
you know, kind of quietly correct some of the record, but with, with a little humor and also gentleness. And then I was fortunate to inherit Gene's archives. So I have thousands of photographs and I have his manuscripts and letters. And um, I think, you know, all of this belongs to the public in a sense. Mm-hmm. So I will be, uh, f- I'm finishing the book right now, the memoir, and then will be creating a kind of virtual collection of all these things so people will have access to it. Well, it's, I'll be the first in line to get the book. I'm super excited. By the way, I'm so glad that she did come in and debunk a lot of that stuff that's on Wikipedia because if you go to Steve's page, it says Steve's a comic. Okay. So it's, you know, it's always There's good only to get one in there. Way. And I love that you're going to all these European cities. This guy just got back from Dayton, Ohio. So you can see where the careers are going. My Lord. <laughs> yeah, but we won't way. say where you thought Luxembourg was. <laughs> Keep that between us. <laughs> well, it's very fitting we end the yes. show with this song. And we cannot, on behalf thank of you, all thank of you, us, thank you, thank you, thank you, oh, thank you well, so thank much you. for spending time. This was time. really an honor to be here and it's fun. It's an incredible education to get to learn about this gentleman entertainer and icon and we cannot thank you enough let's do it again sometime we will absolutely yeah thank you so much